and welcome to Balance X Future Farming, where we chat with experts about some of the big issues impacting farmers and growers in Aotearoa and break down the science behind it to figure out practical solutions. I'm your host, Tangaro Walker, a Kiwi farmer based down here in Southland, and I'm here to learn too. This week we're taking a closer look into food production security and the challenges our industry is facing to maintain current levels of food production. Between climate change, social license, and the growing global population, there's a lot for us to navigate our way through. The good news is, here in Aotearoa, we have a different climate, unique soils, and a solid reputation on global scale that we can use to our advantage to grow more food. So how do us farmers make the most of these opportunities? There's a lot to be excited about in terms of getting a better understanding as to how we do things on farm, because who else gets up at three o'clock in the morning, works till five on a Christmas and New Year's day, and has a Monday to Sunday work week and is still excited about it. So I'm really excited for the future of farming and uh, food production to the world. And that's just what we're here to talk about with today's two experts. First up, we have Sheree Belvitt. Sheree is a Nutrient Science Manager at Balance Agri-Nutrients. She has a background in ecology and a PhD in soil science. She has 15 years experience working in the agricultural industry, where she has been researching practices to mitigate the environmental impact of agriculture. Second up, we have Dr. Liz Wedderburn. Dr. Liz Wedderburn is an Ag Research Emeritus International Ambassador with 40 years of research and experience in sustainable pastoral farming and catchment scale in Aotearoa. When it comes to the latest in sustainable livestock, Liz is well connected with the global community. Well, kia ora team. Um, awesome to have you guys on. And I'm looking forward to picking your brains around climate change and, and all things food production in uh, Aotearoa. Let's jump into this beautiful land of ours, the long white cloud. What do you think is unique about the way that we produce food in New Zealand, uh, Liz? Ah, kia ora tangaroa. One, we're an island. So, you know, we can keep out all the nasties, which is really cool. Two, we've got a really good climate. So we get rainfall good sunshine. We've got different climatic zones throughout New Zealand. So, you know, you've got your gorgeous uh, Taitokara up there, which is, you know, you can get that semi-tropical stuff. And then you come through into the glorious Waikato. And, and so that allows us to grow at different times of the year. And it also allows a diversity of different foods, whether it's uh, livestock or beautiful pears or nashis or avocados or whatever. And even good turnips. I mean, Scots like good turnips when they're soup, so that's good. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, that diversity, I think, is really good. I think we should never, ever forget the fact that we've got great people. Yes. Really, really good people who know their land, know the whenua, know, what they, uh, know what's happening there. My uh, expertise is in this kind of livestock sector. Because it's been a grass-based system, we've really followed what I would call ecological principles. You know, where in fact we're using the grazing animal as a nutrient. We hear a lot of negativity about urine and feces and things, but actually it's some fabulous cycling going on in there. <laughs> you know, without the animal, we wouldn't get that cycling. So, yeah. uh, and then without the legume and the, the grass, you know, we wouldn't get the nitrogen cycling through. So we've got to look at that from a positive perspective that there's a really efficient systems going on and it's all because we've got good soils which have got fertility in them and we've been able to match the animal's sort of reproductive life with the pasture 
growth cycle. And that's pretty cool. Yep. Just a couple of things I'd add to that one. There's this, I mean, you mentioned we've got grass based, but actually the fact that we can graze outdoors all year round is quite unique uh, for New Zealand. We've got a very temperate environment. I know that down south in Tangaroa, you'll give an example probably of some people moving into housing systems at certain times of year to protect soils. However, generally, we can be outdoors grazing all year round and we don't have that additional step of having to cut and carry feed to animals, for example. And as well, just, I mean, for everything we produce, we're the alternative season to the Northern Hemisphere, right, where they've got a lot greater population generally and we can fill that gap at the opposite side of the year compared to them when they're growing them. We punch well above our weight here in Aotearoa. We, we export a lot of product. You know, up around 90% of our products is, is exported. Do you think that if we had a become more savvy and, and innovative around the way we produce food, that's going to increase or decrease the amount of product is um, exported? Well, it's a really interesting thing. I mean, you know, that 90% plus is probably because of our population as well. We don't have a lot of people we actually have to feed. So can I look at, well, how's New Zealand going to, you know, if it increases population, we're going to have to think a bit about that. And I think also coming back to me, it's not so much about productivity. It's all about profitability. And so if we've got good, profitable systems that are really delivering to both the environment and what the sector needs, then I think that's where kind of more of a balance will sit. I think part of it is that we produce a lot of the same thing too, right? So it'd be very difficult for New Zealanders to consume so much milk and kiwifruit, for example. So we, we produce a lot of the same things, so we rely on export to be able to consume the remainder, I suppose. Do you think there's a lot of opportunity there if we produce a lot of the same types of food that there's uh, more opportunity for us to diversify the way that we manage our, our land? we just got to remember that we produce a lot of the same thing because we produce those things well. We've really worked out what we produce well and we've run with it. And yes, I think there's room for diversification and there may even be a need for it going forward with climate change and social pressures, for example. However, we should keep doing what we do well and let other people do what they do well. Being majority of our our farms around Aotearoa are grass-based systems, a lot of us are still farming the way that we used to farm, but our social licence, especially domestically, has definitely changed. Now, for me, we've got about 15 to 20% of our farm is touching the road at some point. Therefore, when we're having calving paddocks, colostrum paddocks, crop paddocks that are next to the road, we've had to manage the farm in a way that we've never done before. And that social licence has been one of the key decisions that we've had to uh, prioritise when it comes to cropping paddocks and putting colostrums and springers next to to the road because people have been just taking photos and, and, and it's quite niggly. Do you think that's because everybody has the ability to take a photo and upload uh, an image to social media and it potentially reach, you know, thousands or millions of people? Or do you think that the way that we farm needs to change? I think it's raised awareness a little bit about some of the issues that are in farming across a wider sector of the population. But we've got to remember that knowledge around farming and farming practices has changed along with that technology. We're learning a lot more about what animals require in terms of welfare and we're changing to adapt to those. And I think they go hand in hand. So the requirement to change will be based on an increase in learning and understanding along with these social pressures. 
I was recently on holiday and I was thinking about the difference between traveling in New Zealand versus traveling overseas in Europe and stuff. And when you travel in New Zealand, no matter who you are, all your main roads, you really experience the landscape you're going through. You drive through the middle of these agricultural areas. Whereas if you're overseas, particularly in my experience of Europe and stuff, you kind of go bridge tunnel, bridge tunnel, bridge tunnel, and and skirt around or skirt over. (laughs) You don't don't really get in amongst the landscape on some really, let's be honest, crappy, windy, two-laned roads through the middle of a, a really heavily agricultural area. So I think in New Zealand you've got a little bit more scrutiny just because we do live amongst it a bit more than maybe some other parts of the world. Do you think that this is an opportunity also that we can educate people at scale using tech, the same tech that has put us in this hole, yeah. <laughs> i.e. photos and videos and uploads to, to social media and whatnot and people commenting negatively? Do you think that we can use that and flip it around to help ourselves? Most definitely. I really do. I think I think a lot of people actually aren't even really aware of how the algorithms work. And, you know, if you click on the bad news, you're going to see more of the bad news. So tell us about it. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> that. Just because there'll be people that, that listen right now that don't actually know. I'm no tech expert at all, but basically when it comes to algorithms with social media, they feed you more of what you click on, right? So if you click on all the bad news stories, they're going to feed you more of the bad news stories and you're not going to see the good news stories. And I promise you there's equally as many good news stories as there are bad news stories out there. You just need to be clicking and sharing the good news stories rather than the bad news ones that will feed or spawn more good news stories because that's what is creating the clickbait. So, yeah, I, I really do believe if you just, you know, ignore those bad news ones. You know what you're doing well. You know what you're working, you need to work on. Just ignore that bad news stuff and just click and share all the really good news stuff. And, and if you've got good news stuff happening on your farm and you're comfortable to share that, by all means, share it. And I, I guess I just have a question around whether you truly believe that you are doing best practice that is just maybe... Hiding it? Yeah, sorry. Or if you're hiding your practice because you actually deep down know that maybe you should be, you could be doing it a bit better. Yeah, definitely. I suppose I'm different because I show everything to the world anyway. So, like, there's a cow carving having problems. I'm like videoing it going live, showing <laughs> yeah. people what I do. But I'll speak on behalf of our neighbours. Won't mention them, but um, <laughs> they just can't be bothered with people coming up their driveway all the time saying that there's a cow carving. That's why they don't do it. Or if the cows are on crop, they will get people come up their driveway and say, those cows are standing in mud. What are they doing standing in mud? And they're, they're not never even been on a farm or anything like that and don't understand what's just happened, i.e. Uh, weather issue or, you know, might have had a big dump of rain or something like that. So they just can't be bothered with uneducated people giving their opinion about something that they don't know about. Whereas, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit different because I, I show it all, everything because I'm trying to give the education piece around it so that people don't do that. <laughs> and so when you have someone drive up your driveway and they say, oh, I'm seeing a cow calf, and you, do you explain to them that yeah, that they get on and do it themselves, they've been doing it themselves forever and, and, yep. and we'll, go, we'll go in later and if we've, we've got our eyes on them, don't worry, we check them X times a day or, you know, do you talk them through it or? Yeah, like so we've had three people, we've been on this farm six years, three people have come up our driveway and we're not even close to a main road. It was just someone going for a tiki tour. One time the lady came up and she was like, oh, there's a cow having issues carving down there. And I was like, oh, what was her number? And she was like, I I don't know. And I was like, oh, was she a a brown cow with a heart on her face? 
Yeah. And she was like, oh, yes, yes, that's the one. And I was like, oh, yeah, two, three, seven. Yep. She's having twins today. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, just, you know, just by saying that sort of stuff there. And, and I suppose just being equipped to, you know, for, for me to be able to say, I know that that cow's having twins. She started calving 20 minutes ago. I'll give her another 20 before I go down there and see what's going on. And just like all of that sort of stuff. So, I mean, we're pretty getting pretty close to a human level there of management. And I know what breed the calf was going to be and and all the diet that's come up behind that, you know, just all of those sorts of things and, and having those plans and procedures in place. That's telling the stories, eh? Yeah, I agree. And and I, I don't think that many do understand how much you are aware of what is going on in, um, with your herd at any one time. When I say many people, I guess I'm talking about the non-agricultural community. And it is Murphy's Law that they will catch you having your one break of the day and having a cup of tea and a, and a bicky when yeah. they do roll up and tell you that you've got a cow in trouble or they believe to be in trouble. And it, it's about telling those stories, I think, and about sharing those news about actually how aware you are of what's going on there. And that was a perfect example. Yeah, I, I would really endorse what Shuri's saying there because they – for me, you know, learning has been the key thing in farming. And, you know, we talk about diversification, but in some instances, we've got an, a new generation of farmers coming through and they haven't been exposed, say, to those public extension services, maybe that those older farmers had available to them. And so I'm wondering about, you know, relearning some of the things or just not maybe relearning because you don't know it in the first place. But, you know, things about particularly in livestock farming, getting your paddock sizes right, knowing your feed budget, having your genetics right. You know, those basics, how to manage a legume in your pasture. You know, we've sort of moved away from that. So for me, it's about only not only looking for some fancy new system, but actually, are we really managing what we have to the best? Because until you can manage to the best, you can't really start thinking about moving into something else. Liz, you talked about different land uses, as you know, a lot of us farmers are probably sitting in tractors right now, milking their cows or in the shearing shed. They've noticed a whole lot of houses popping up as you know, towns expand and, and move and Sometimes our food baskets are having to move. Do you think that there's the loss of all of these high-valued soils, especially around Auckland, is going to change the way that we have to produce protein out of Aotearoa? I think it's certainly a challenge and a, and a danger if there's no real planning around where our versatile soils are. Because, again, if, the, if it kind of goes up willy-nilly with no strategy behind it, then what we could find is that we're pushed to more and more marginal land yes. for productivity. So that is a, a real concern. And so I think that um, any policies looking at where those versatile soils are and protection will be really required. Yeah, and I do believe they're in the pipeline. And I don't think it's only um, housing. There are a lot of pressures on land area at the moment for all sorts of uses and it is going to mean that food production is impacted. Definitely. And climate change may also play a large role in that in terms of what regions are suitable for what going forward as well, not only competition by other land uses but in terms of weather patterns because we've described how New Zealand does what it does well because of our lucky climate which has generally meant plentiful water when we need it and that may not be the case going forward. Uh, the models suggest some areas are going to get drier, dry areas are going to get drier and wetter areas may get wetter. So it may mean some changes 
as well to what we can do where. Yeah, and look, we've done some pretty awesome podcasts in the past, and I'm sure there's going to be some awesome ones coming through. For those of our listeners that are listening right now and haven't listened to any of, of the other ones, they all sort of tie into this one. So make sure you guys dot back and, and check them all out because as we start talking about some more higher level situations in this podcast, it's sort of good to understand what's happened in our past discussions as well. So I've been brought up around rivers and gone diving ever since I could walk. I've got a question there just around uh, bikinis. I bet you guys have jumped into a bikini lately. Do you, Have you noticed a change in the way that we can swim in our waterways? <laughs> well, I'm at the sea <laughs> and the sea's been freezing. So no, but I, but well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think again, if you look, if you look at the Ministry for the Environment's reports and regional reports, there has been improvement in what we see in some of our rivers, you know, from baseline. And we know that there's a lot of work to be done in other places. And there's been a huge amount of planting or riparian. So, um, so again, if you go into the stats, the, the figures are all on the upward trend, you know, with regards to plantings and things. And I think also choosing, and this is why you sort of talk about more like landscapes and catchments rather than the farm, because we've got what, you know, there's a, a term called critical source area, which is actually just means it's the bit of your farm where 80% of the muck's coming from, you know? Yes, And yes. so actually... It sounds flash, though. It does. It sounds really flash. <laughs> but, and farmers know those spaces. They'd be walking over their farm and they know, oh, that's always a wet gully or, oh, you know, that's where it slips, you know? And so... That's where a lot of the planting can get targeted. And once you've done that, it's sort of like that's up here. I think when farmers get frustrated because they're doing this stuff, but there is a time delay in the landscape to the community seeing it, you know. Yes. So um, I think we have to have expectations around, yeah, things are happening. Biology is a bit slow and more things can happen. I'm not saying that they don't need to happen, but it's about, well, what's the realistic expectations of how quickly we can do this? Could be two generations. Yeah. The word critical source is, it's new, right? It's new. It's, it's a flash away to say a wet area. And uh, quite a few of the older guys who, who have come onto our farm who used to own the farm that I'm on currently, I try and say to them, oh, we're doing this about this critical source area. And they're sort of like, what's a critical source area? And I'm like, oh, it's a wet area. And he's like, oh, we've been doing heaps about wet areas for, you know, ever since I started farming. And so this public perception around, no, we've never done anything around waterways, you know, we, we actually, it's just a new way of saying a wet area that needs to manage, right? Yeah, I guess it's a little more complex than just a wet area. It's, it's yep. an area where you are losing the majority of your contaminants, whether that be phosphorus or whether it be nutrients or, nutrients or whether it be fecal matter that contains E. coli, for example. It's where you are losing the majority of your contaminants. And I think the main message behind critical source areas is it's about where you should focus your efforts in terms of mitigation efforts. And um, as you say, many people have been inherently aware of these areas for a long time on their farm and have been doing stuff under the radar. And it's just about bringing everyone up to that level as well, right? And so those that don't understand about critical source areas, maybe they will understand and they can learn from these guys that have been ahead of the game for some time. Okay. Let's jump into climate change. We're all aware, you know, that climate change is smacking us at the moment. I don't think many farmers out there are aware or have the conversation around 
how it's affecting the way that we produce food. On my farm, <laughs> all the farms around us, all we all carve different times of August, and it's based on uh, how long people have been farming around this area. And so we get a new person that moves in as a contract milker next door. They'll start carving the same time, obviously, as what they were carving at the farm previously that they worked on. So let's say it might be the, I don't know, 7th of August, for example. And then they'll pick up that our climate around here is a bit different to, you know, 30 kilometres on the other side of town. And we carve about three weeks later here. We've sort of only started adapting to climate in the last 10 years. And uh, it's quite interesting. Is it the same up, up in the North Island tree? Is it, is it like that up there? Or people starting to navigate away from the way that they used to farm? Yeah, I can't draw on any specific examples off the top of my head, but, you know, I think a lot of people used to maybe consider themselves summer safe and have enough rainfall and hence enough feed to get them through summer. And so that is maybe not the case anymore. There'll be a lot of people that are changing how they manage their pastures to be able to get through a summer deficit as well as a winter deficit and looking at how they defer feed, et cetera, et cetera, to manage that because summer is very different in the last few years for most of the North Island. Yeah. And I think that's also where you're kind of looking at different crops coming in as well, so that, you know, again, you're, it may not be that it's a pasture base to help with some of the um, the climate, then maybe you're going to need a brassica more, um, that type of shifts with the, the feed. Because I think the important thing, and it comes back to New Zealand's uniqueness, is um, our efficiency, you know, per kilogram of product, our efficiency is really high. And part of that is because we have got homegrown feed. We're not importing heaps of soybean and all sorts of things to feed the animals. And so finding those forage base, well, sorry, against livestock, so finding the forage base that will fit that system is going to be really important. And I think one of the other pressures as well is maintaining pastures and persistence of some of these new crops. So, I mean, there's lots of talk around plantain and, and chicory mm. and things with a deeper root or a tap root and stuff, but actually kind of maintaining those in pastures can be quite difficult. So that, it does bring other challenges, but yes, definitely people are exploring, I mean, for multiple reasons, but um, managing drought is another one is for exploring these um, different pastures and crops, herbs. So what do you think are the other issues we're seeing as a result of climate change? And, and what do you think people can do about them? Pest and disease issues are probably one of the big issues associated with climate change because, you know, many of you may have access to irrigation water and stuff, so the, the changes in those weather patterns may not be such an issue. But when we grow large monocultures of crops, obviously the pest and disease risk increases. But there are already a lot of pests that are in the country that don't thrive or they are maybe an only an issue in one part of the country or, you know, and we, we talk about rotating crops and soils to try and manage them. But if we are getting an extra life cycle in each season or the area in which they can inhabit it, uh, moves further south, for example, if it's getting warmer, you know, black beetle might become an issue in, yeah. in Southland <laughs> maybe. Yeah. So there, there are a lot of... Um, other issues around um, pest and disease beyond biosecurity. And as well with climate change, and we're talking about different weather, we're probably going to get an increase in humidity in some areas, so fungal diseases. And then, I mean, and it all cycles back, right? So then there's the, the pressure on how you manage those and, and what tools you are using to manage pests and diseases. And, and you know, like there's just going to be a lot of pressure around that going forward. So do you think that we're a lot more vulnerable now just with our weather changing? Uh, like yesterday... You know, we, it's February, start of February. We had a frost. 
Did you? It was two degrees yesterday, which is ridiculous. Um, not normal. <laughs> Might sound normal for South for Southland, but not normal at all. Oh, I mean, yes, we're at risk for lots of things, but, you know, maybe it helps in other ways. And, I mean, I can't think of any really good examples off the top of my head, but, you know, people are, are really smart and really resilient, and I, I don't want it to come across like overly negative. People will find ways around these things and do find ways around these things. And, you know, there will be unfortunate times where maybe a, a crop is ruined or we've got a lot of hungry animals to deal with and stuff like that. But I, I think, in general, people... Are figuring it out and are moving toward a new system that allow that has a greater resilience for these events, right? And we all talk to each other. Eh? We're all our best friends. Our neighbor, we, you know, we have have barbecues and whatnot with our neighbours, and straight after yeah. carving or lambing, you know, someone will be having a celebrating a, a birthday or something, and that's when we get out and start talking about those niggly things and get prepared for for what's coming up for next season. And just sharing knowledge is is awesome because we're all in. In the business of the same thing, being food producers, good way of sharing knowledge, eh? Yeah, and one of one of Liz's specialties is actually around um, the resilience of communities to some of these things. I don't know whether you have any comment there, Liz, to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think that some of the, the research that's been done, say particularly after heavy snowfalls or, or after heavy rainfalls, it really comes back down to that community itself. And so, you know, the kind of networks that they've already got in place and their preparedness. My concern is as we get a lot of movement and new people coming in and people are so overwhelmed because, I mean, this conversation today just shows you, you know, goodness, being a farmer, you'd be kind of walking out the door tomorrow. You've got pests and diseases. You've got social license. You've got, oh, I'm not even making a profit, you know, so why bother, Jimmy? You know, so, you know, overall of that, it's a sort of like, hey, no, there is a good supportive community sitting in there. And it's not just a local one. I mean, it's a global community. And so I'm thinking, how do farmers, you know, because you, you go around, you have your barbecue, you have a bit of a chat about your local condition. But somebody up in the Waikato is probably having similar issues about pests. It might be a different one. But somebody in uh, North America, somebody in Uruguay, they're kind of all having the same sort of issues. So for me, it's about how do you build that network so that it kind of feeds into that well-being? I'm really excited. There was so much excitement um, in terms of uh, the conversation around climate change. Like people sort of avoid it. You know, if you go down to the local rugby club or, or down to the pub and People don't want to talk about it. As soon as a farmer mentions climate change, they're like, oh, it's like talking about COVID, you know. Uh, but there is so much excitement there around tech, like the innovation, the way that we share our stories navigating forward is pretty awesome. You know, now we can actually measure everything that goes on to our farm and exits. I'm excited uh, to tell the stories. And just lastly around that, we, we're so farmers are so passionate about farming. A lot of real farmers don't actually go out to farm like a lot of them don't even know what they get paid a year, you know. It's because they don't really care. It's not they're not doing it for that, and that's the awesome thing about it. The problem is, is that we're so passionate about it and we want to tell the story, but our consumer doesn't know the story. You know, the consumer doesn't know the touch points that happen during the process of, let's say, milking a cow or or shearing sheep or or, or for a, a beautiful rack of lamb to be sitting on a plate in Auckland or overseas, you know, what are all the touch points that have had to happen along that journey from the farmer? So as we start talking about climate change and tech and all that sort of stuff, the storytelling aspect to buying food and selling food, that's where we're going to have a whole lot of bang for buck in terms of uh, New Zealand produced meat and 
and fat and protein and cheese and butter and every type of food that we produce. It's the touch points. That's what I'm excited about, mate. No, that's really cool because, again, a lot of those consumers are looking for the family story, that connection back. That's that kind of romantic idea of farming, but we can fill that. I remember hearing a comment once which really was like, ooh, gulp, because the um, – you know, our whole grass-fed farming, you know, it's all in vogue these days, you know, globally, you know, grass. I, I did a bit of a talk on it once and all these markets and global, you know, everybody, Uruguay is going to have the best grass-fed in the world. Brazil's got the best grass. New Zealand's <laughs> got the grass. And we're like, but we've done this for a long time. 150 years we've been grass-fed. We've done it for a long time. And then when uh, the processes were going, you know, to the people that buy the meat and saying, but we've got that, they're going, yeah, well, we've always had that. So what's your added value now? You know, we haven't been paying you for that added value, but, you know, well, what's different? So, you know, we kind of missed the boat slightly. So we can't, we've got to paddle to keep up now and really get ahead because we've got the stories. So we need really good storytellers and linking into that social media across the world you know the farmer there's a world farmers forum there's a whole heap of others that people can connect into so you can see that you're not alone in this you know as a whole there's a movement there but there's a movement here as well and the other thing which excites me is it's like that whole portfolio of food systems you know one end you can get your alternative proteins in your lab-based meat and then the other end you know you might get intensive systems and we're sitting, you know, somewhere in that middle ground there around grass-fed. But people don't see that big picture. So when I talk to vegans, it's always about those really hard-end areas where it's very intensive factory. When I start to move them towards the grass-fed, they get a bit sweeter. When I take them to nomadic pastoral places and I go, well, you know, those people need it for, you know, rural livelihoods, they need it for dowries, they need it for also. Oh, no, we're not talking about them. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's somewhere in there that we have we have to grab that story, as you say, and just tell it. It's cool because we're doing it. I'm just thinking that I'm going to have to put a lot more time aside to go grocery shopping because I'm going to have to read the, the story on the back of every packet of <laughs> oh, reed flour I buy or rack of lamb I buy. Not that I buy that very often. Yeah, I'm sure you read the back of the wine bottles that you drink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on occasion, you're right, because they have good stories. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah but it'll, it'll mean for a, a long shot. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll make it taste a little bit sweeter, eh? You know? I yeah. think so. Taking it back to the family level. Mm-hmm. All right, Shreya, going to throw a question at you, mate. What excites you about farming in Aotearoa uh, heading into the future? I've been dwelling on this one because I knew it was coming, and I, and I actually have a couple. One is I'm a really a little bit excited that we're really getting into the meaty part and we're going to have solutions for some of these problems that we've been looking at for the past 20 to 30 years around nutrient management and climate change and greenhouse gases. And we're really, the rubber's really hitting the road around that now. And I'm looking forward to coming out the other end of that. And my other really quick one is around tech. Like I think the the tech world and how that's going to help, particularly our horticultural customers going forward, like that really excites me. Awesome. What about you, Liz? The one I think which really excites me is the entry of uh, Maori entities. So a lot of the post-settlement people coming in now and it's sort of like uh, the whenua and everything associated with that and how to think about how to work with the whenua. 
is going to be models for going forward because it's not just a production focus. It's just the well-beings are just cool. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And then the other one is the whole idea about our innovative farmers, you know, a next generation of farmers coming through who just want to learn from each other and who are doing things on the ground. And a lot of that stuff will help us towards find solutions as well, because as you're adapting and doing your stuff, sharing it, yeah, you move forward. So yeah, it's cool. Well, team, what an awesome kōrero. One of the things that really made farmers like me think differently was, I suppose, how proud we should be of food production and on a global scale that, you know, we're feeding mouths all around the world. We're the most efficient country at producing protein around the world and we should be, you know, really proud of it. But I think something that I learned from today was the fact that we need to tell our story way better. We actually really struggle to tell a story at the moment, but there's so many stories out there Every farm gate has a story to tell. They're all occupied by farm families, some going back generations. So if we can tie those small corridor from the farm gates into the product and protein that leaves that gate, we're going to be far better at uh, selling our product around the world. Well, it's been an awesome corridor with Liz and Sheree. I just want to thank them so much and uh, thank you guys for listening. Don't forget to jump over, rate, review and subscribe and make sure you guys tell all your mates and I look forward to catching up with you guys next time. Kaki dip.